0: Tonight's talk is titled, Living with Metta, Dana and Sila Practice. So we spent this week cultivating an open and friendly heart. And then the question is, what does this cultivation mean in the actions of our lives? How is it reflected in how we live our lives? It's obviously not much use if it's just a mental exercise. How does it translate into how we relate to others? How we relate to the world through our actions? Some of you will be leaving tomorrow and you'll have an um, active exploration of this question and your life back at home. Some of you are still staying for nine more days or ten more days, but these questions are also relevant to our practice here on retreat. The Buddha presented the teachings in three parts for us lay people, and two of them directly address this question of uh, translating our practice into our lives or living our practice in a way that reflects our understanding. So the three parts in the Pali language are dhāna, sila, and bhavana, usually translated as giving, ethical conduct, and mind development. So here we've been focusing a lot on mind development. And now I'd like to talk a little bit about dana and sila And I like to use the Pali words, so I'll I'll stick to those. The translation of dana is giving or generosity. Most of us don't have trouble with, but sila, uh, sometimes it's translated as morality, which doesn't usually work so well for a lot of people. Ethical conduct usually works, but I just like the word sila. So when we develop metta and our hearts are filled with metta, many of you have noticed and commented how there's this sense of tenderness that we feel. And when our hearts are clear, it's natural to want to practice Don and Sila. It's natural to want to give. It's natural to want to live in a way that doesn't cause harm to ourselves or others. So it's natural to want to extend that kindness, so when we talk about practicing dana and sila, it's not—it's not this idea of a commandment: "Thou shalt be generous" and "Thou shalt not harm others." It's more um, an expression itself of this awakened heart. And we can approach dana and sila as practices in themselves, and we can approach them with the same kind of curiosity and exploration that we have given to our metta practice? What does generosity mean? What impedes it in my life? What supports it? What does it mean to live in a way that doesn't harm others? What supports that? What impedes that? Endless opportunities we get all day long to uh, explore these questions. So dana and sila practice um, can help awaken the heart and mind because they show us where we're stuck and they stretch us to express our understanding. Dana and sila practice also helps keep our practice from becoming too self-absorbed. The Dalai Lama said, It's only one six billionth about me. (laughs) and I I mean, I I love that. (laughs) I love that expression. (laughs) And Donna and Sila practices is a way of acknowledging that, right? (laughs) Hmm. Or you could say from the place of everyone is our relative that um, Jesse mentioned the other night and through, that we cultivate through metta practice is seeing everyone as our friend or our relative. And in that sense, we, we look out after each other. We share with each other. We protect each other. That's the flavor of dana and sila. And it, when we practice... Donna and Sila, we also benefit. Our actions actually create the world that we live in. I travel sometimes to teach, and um, sometimes airports can be kind of uh, alienating places. Everybody's rushing around trying to get where they need to get and do what they need to do, and there's problems and this and that. So I love to practice sending metta in airports. And I just when I come, go by people, I'll just go happy in my mind. I don't say it all out loud. <laughs> I'll be happy, happy. And for me, it's just really amazing when I do this, how it transforms the airport for me, right? It, it seems, um, I, I swear people treat me more friendly. I actually don't know if they do or not, or if that's just how it feels. That's the kind of world I create when I, when I spread metta. On the other hand, if we live in a way that causes harm, we create that kind of a world. For example, if we tend to lie a lot, we'll find that we're suspicious of others. We're not sure that they're telling the truth. So we've created a world of suspiciousness. Our practice of dana and sila are rooted in the understanding of the law of karma, one of the Buddha's um, key points of, uh, we need to understand in our wisdom practice. Karma is basically, could be stated, um, as we sow, so shall we reap, or our actions have consequences, or the law of cause and effect. So sometimes it's likened to planting seeds, that if you plant certain kinds of seeds, you get certain kinds of results. So if our friend toad the other night, if he planted uh, lettuce seeds, he'd get lettuce most likely. And if he planted chili peppers, he'd get chili peppers. The seeds we plant in our garden determine what the crop will be. What the harvest will be. It's pretty logical. The law of karma is quite logical. Basically, if we act in ways that spread um, kindness, uh, happiness is more likely to follow. And if we act in ways that cause suffering or harm, unhappiness is more likely to follow. Karma's understood as a law of the universe, so it's not a punishment. It's not like you, um, you get punished for how you are. It's that it's just how things work. It's like gravity. Gravity just is a law of the universe. It's how this universe works. Karma's a law of the universe. That what we put out comes back in some way or the other. And it has this constant feedback loop. There's a friend of mine, Tasha, who said, life is always helping us learn, a built-in feedback mechanism. When we do what's skillful, we feel good. And when we do what's unskillful, we feel remorse. And so that, that, that feeling actually helps us to learn and reinforces, feeds back into the system. So if we remember a time that we caused harm, that we hurt somebody or some being, the flavor in our mind is heavy or turbulent, not settled. And likewise, if we remember a time that we were generous or kind, Helped somebody, did a favor for somebody. Our heart and mind feels light, happy, malleable. Now, which mind is going to meditate better? So our practice, our meditation practice, is directly related to this. We see that when we act in ways that spread kindness, giving, non-harming, that our minds are happier, they're more settled, and they're easier to meditate. It's actually said that happiness is a proximate cause of concentration, that a happy mind is is most easily concentrated. And likewise, we see that if um, our actions are ones that cause harm, that it will be harder to meditate. There'll be more turbulence, harder to settle the mind. There's karma in action. So I'll talk a little bit about um, both of these separately now, starting with sila. One teacher describes sila as cleaning up your act. Sila means living our lives with a commitment to non-harming. It's living our lives from a metta heart, from a metta space. And it's kind of a no-brainer if we um, are developing metta in our practice, an open heart. It's kind of a no-brainer that we don't want to go around causing harm and suffering, right? It's not hard to figure out. Charlotte Joko Beck, my um, one of my favorite teachers to read, she says practice can be stated very simply: it is moving from a life of hurting myself and others to a life of not hurting myself and others. That's sila, and sila is based in compassion, in caring about suffering. And it really operates from our innate innate sense of compassion. It's listening to our own innate sense of morality. And if we listen deeply, we know what's right. I used to kill mosquitoes. And then when I started to actually really pay attention... To what it really felt like to kill a mosquito? When I was really present for it? <laughs> like a little spider on my leg. <laughs> wow, well, this guy knows where to go, huh? <laughs> Oh, He's not really causing harm, so I think I'm just going to leave him alone. (laughs) But when I really let myself be present, like when I killed a mosquito, I couldn't do it anymore. It hurt too much. I knew it wasn't right. No one had to tell me that. A couple of summers ago, my partner and I went camping in... um, Michelle's going to laugh at this. We went camping in northern Maine at the end of June. (laughs) We wondered why the campground was pretty empty. (laughs) Went to Baxter State Park. And um, wow, that that was really a practice period, you know. It was like I've never had that experience where there's like mosquitoes all day and all the, there were black flies all day and mosquitoes all evening and night, you know. So there wasn't a break. It's like, you know, usually here we get the black flies for a while, but the mosquitoes haven't come out yet. So like, you know, at least in the evening it's better. And then once the black flies in, then the mosquitoes come. But then there were also um, deer flies too. So I just, you know, I had to really work with that. Like how how to not go crazy and not to um, kill the the bugs. We eventually left. (laughs) 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 I've never been run out of a campground before because of bugs, but um, it was either that or engage in a lot of killing, and I didn't want to do that. Mm. One day... um, last summer, I came out of my house, and I have this big watering can. I, I have a big garden, so I have this big watering can like like, like that, uh, Water, you know, that with spout. So I came in. I came out, and there was this chipmunk in the water can, and it had fallen in, and it was paddling for its dear life. You know, it was paddling, 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 and um, it was so touching you know i just saw that life force like how much we all want to live all beings want to live right so i dumped it on the ground and it was kind of like <laughs> i was like what just happened you know <laughs> um, but there's something about stuck with that moment because um wow all beings have that wish to live right and it's that compassion, right, that our hearts. When we really pay attention in meditation, you guys have gotten sensitive. You know what I'm talking about. When we really pay attention, um, we feel that, and we and we respond. So that's why what I mean when I say that Don and Seal isn't "Thou shalt do this, Thou shalt not do that." It's like really um, cultivating that sensitivity where the heart responds. So I love talking about sila. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. It's such a concrete practice. The Buddha called it a great gift. A great gift offering freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression to countless beings. So the precepts uh, are a great support for for sila practice. They really um, give us um, a place to start and uh, um, places to look at where uh, we could easily cause suffering. A number of um, years ago, Jack Cornfield used to do a New Year's retreat here, and um, I used to come over sometimes at midnight. He'd do this um, ceremony where you um, make a protection cord. It kind of comes from the Tibetan tradition, I think. So you take this cord, red cord, and you tie in the the refuges and you tie in the the five precepts. Um, and he said that once he did this uh, ceremony with the Tibetan Lama and. He asked the Lama, he said, well, who who are we protecting ourselves from? And the Lama said, why yourself, of course. (laughs) The precepts are a protection. They protect us from causing harm. So just a reminder for those of you who aren't very used to or don't know them very well, the precepts are to um, refrain from taking life. To refrain from taking that which is not given to us to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from hurtful or false speech, and to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind to the there's some question about the translation whether it's to to take and to not take it to refrain from intoxicants entirely or to refrain from intoxicants. That cloud the mind to the point of heedlessness. The point being that um, if we take a lot of intoxicants, we're more likely to break the other four, Uh, you know, the heedlessness that can come from it. So the precepts um, point out potential problem areas to us. They're like Little red flags, that's how I use them. It's like I'm about to do something and then this little flag will say precept (laughs) and then I'll I'll look to see what I'm doing. Two nights ago I was in the kitchen and um, as teachers we're allowed to take some food back. uh, We stay in little cottages nearby and we're allowed to take food back um, for our our personal use. And um, rice milk is one of the things that we can take And so I was getting some rice milk, and then I noticed next to the rice milk, almond milk. And I prefer almond milk. I like almond milk, right? So I wanted to take the almond milk. And um, I really wanted the almond milk, you know? So it was like, I had this little internal struggle, and, uh, you know, so my mind started justifying, right? Well, almond milk, rice milk, what's the difference? I'm sure I can take almond milk, you know? Um, And then, you know, precept. Not taking what's not given to you. And then I thought, well, you know, there were only a few cartons of almond milk. I thought, maybe they're planning on using the almond milk for something tomorrow. And if I take it, there won't be enough. I could cause, you know, suffering for some, one of the cooks. And besides, it wasn't offered to me. So I didn't take it. And then the next um, night at uh, tea time, they had um, soup, that vichyssoise or whatever it's called. And the special needs one was made with almond milk, you know. And I loved that I had the precept. It was a protection for me to have that. Without the precept, who knows what I would have done. I might have justified it enough to take it, right? But it's so much simpler to keep it clean. That's what the precept helped me do. And then today I asked a cook, I said, can we take almond milk? And she said, yeah, that should be fine. So tonight I'm going to take some <laughs> almond milk. <laughs> but, it's, but I feel so much better about it, right? And it's only a little thing, right? But we get these chances all, all the time. These kinds of decisions come up all the time. And it's really, um, it's like great stress reduction to, uh, to keep it clean, Another example might be a lie, right? How often do we want to tell a lie? (coughs) But then we tell one lie, and then we might get kind of caught in it, and then we have to tell another lie, and then we have to remember who we told which lie to, and it gets pretty stressful. A few number of years ago, um, my mother wanted me to come home I was coming, out, going back to Minnesota for something, and um, she wanted me to come earlier than I wanted to come. Kind of, I was feeling pretty busy, and I wanted to be home, and, and so the first thing I thought was I was just going to tell her a lie, right? And that, that's how I'd get out of it. Precept flag, <laughs> Woo, watch out, red flag, you know, and, and I realized that, you know, if I told her that lie and then she found out it wasn't true, she wouldn't, she'd feel terrible, Right? Possibility of suffering. So I told her the truth. I told her that I was tired and then I needed to be home, and it worked out fine. So the precepts keep us out of trouble, they keep um, our hearts, um, our heart garden, weed free and ready to cultivate. Sila is sometimes complex. It's um, very, I, I see it, there's different ways that people look at this, but I see it as contextual. And the Buddha said that what's most important is our motivation behind our actions. So what's motivating us to do something, whether it's motivated out of greed, taking the almond milk would have been motivated out of greed, right? Or if it's motivated out of compassion, what's, what's happening But the problem is that our motivations are often mixed and confusing, and that's why the precepts help us to have a backup. But even then, um, sometimes it's really complicated. A number of years ago here at IMS, um, many, many years ago, like 25, um, I was a cook, I was on staff here, and uh, we started to have a cockroach problem, (laughs) and nobody wanted to kill the cockroaches. It was it was really um, really a, quite a a moral dilemma in some ways for the staff and back then the staff was run totally by volunteers it was wild um, and you know all the decisions were made by consensus by all of us it was pretty interesting <laughs> so uh, at one point the staff organized this like um, circle to ask the cockroaches to leave. <laughs> They didn't go. The <laughs> <laughs> show was against the canoe, the the cockroaches asking them to please. It was getting really bad. I won't give you guys the details, but um, finally finally somebody on staff said, I'll take the karma. <laughs> and, um, and and um we no longer have a cockroach problem, so don't worry about it. But um that's pretty complicated sometimes. You know, I have a garden, so I'm, I'm always trying to figure out what to do um, about bugs. Mostly I, I grow extra, I just figure that up to about a third of the harvest, I, I don't get too upset. <laughs> but I also sometimes skip certain crops, certain years, if the year before there were a lot of bugs, you know, next year I won't grow it. Or sometimes I transplant them, I take them somewhere else. Um, Just you know it's just about paying attention and figuring out what is the wisest and most compassionate and least harmful way to do things and then the thing with the precepts too is that um, you know we, we break them from time to time either by carelessness or or sometimes it's our deeply conditioned patterns sometimes we have deep patterns of um, behavior that change very slowly and can cause us to break the precepts. And I'm not always talking about in huge ways, even smaller ways. And then it's just about the learning. The Buddha said, if you're going to do something unskillful, do it mindfully so that you can learn. And then about forgiving ourselves over and over again. One meditation master said, um, life is one continuous mistake. But we can learn from our mistakes, right? So we pay attention. With our um, mindfulness practice and our metta practice, the heart practice, the wisdom practices, We get an increased sensitivity to how we affect others. There's one um, version of the precepts that we use. We use it in the teen retreat. It starts out each precept, or sometimes they're called mindfulness trainings, which is great. It starts out, knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the mindfulness training to refrain from taking life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, That's what the precepts are about, or is about, knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. And so we get more and more sensitive about that. And sometimes when we practice, we'll go through periods where we'll, we'll remember uh, things that we did. And they might just be small things, but things that we did that weren't so skillful, and, and we'll feel remorse. And that's considered actually um, wholesome. Because it's it, when we feel that remorse is actually to bite again, when we feel that we, um, we're motivated to purify our sila. Here's a story that's um, about that sensitivity, which I find delightful. And again, it's from Lynn Jensen, it's just who I happen to be reading at the moment, um, it's, but it's from his book called Bad Dog. At a recent stay at Shasta Abbey, I learned I happened to learn of a practice the monks kept while traveling by car. Whenever they saw the remains of a roadkill, all but the driver would raise their hands, palm to palm before bowed heads and intone a brief memorial to the slain animal. When circumstances permitted, the monks sometimes stopped and performed a short roadside burial and service. It's one way they told me to pay homage to the source of life. It's not possible, the monk said, to live without doing harm to others, and this is as true of driving as with anything else. But, they explained, you can do a lot less harm by slowing down or by breaking or swerving to avoid cl- collision whenever possible. No one, they told me, could drive the agricultural roads of California in spring or summer without killing insects. But we have learned that if you drive slowly in these areas, it's possible to kill far fewer. And when we stop, we say a brief memorial for the ones that have died. So sensitive, right? And, and then that sensitivity to drive more slowly so that they won't kill the insects. So that's the first precept right, of protecting life. Another way that we can pay attention to this precept is just seeing how carelessness can cause harm, especially with bugs, right? So there's a spider, and if we're careless, (laughs) I wonder where my spider friend went. Um, If we're, you know, there's a spider in the sink, and if we're careless and don't pay attention, we can wash it down. But if we're mindful and more careful, then we can protect it. And then the second precept of not taking what's not given. So perhaps here on retreat, if there's somebody's left their shampoo in the shower and you go in the shower and you see the shampoo and you're like, oh, I've always wanted to try that brand, right? You refrain because it wasn't given to you. Or I like it at lunch, right? The moderation signs. Those are a great practice in the second precept. Um, so you know it says moderation don't take too much so it's like hmm how much is too much right but, but practicing restraint or the other day we were um, as a team we were trying to find um, a watch to lend somebody and then somebody had a watch that a yogi had left here and they said well here you can lend that one for a while and then you can get it back and we'll give it back to the yogi. And then I said, you know, it's not clean, right? It's, it's, it wasn't given to us to lend. It's just that, that paying attention, because maybe it would have gotten lost and then the yogi would have tried to get their watch and then their watch wouldn't have been there. Last uh, fall, We noticed that we didn't have um, sand for. Was that for the? Yeah, that was for the vegetables. So I I keep um, some vegetables in the in the fall, carrots and um, beets, and if you pack them in sand, they keep for a while. And so we have a big garage in our town. You know, a big town garage, and there's sand there. And I and I wasn't quite sure, like, if I could take that sand. Nobody's guarding it, but I wasn't really sure if I. if I could take it for my vegetables, you know, I think we can take it. or I thought we could take it, like for our, the, the driveway and stuff. So um, I called the town clerk, and they weren't in, and I left a message. And the clerk calls me back, and she says, "Yeah, she says you can go. You can take that sand. That's okay." She said, "Thank you so much for calling." She was like so impressed, you know, but she was, but but she was so happy that I asked. You know, it, it, it created for her a sense of safety, that fearlessness that the Buddha talked about. So just taking care with things. There's not going to be enough time. <laughs> mm. I have to read this. It's too much fun. Okay. So this is a story from an essay from E.M. Foster. The essay is called My Wood. And it's really, it's about um, under our relationship to things, which this whole second precept falls under. It made me feel it ought to be larger, his woods. The other day I heard a twig snap in it. I was annoyed at first, for I thought that someone was blackberrying and depreciating the value of the undergrowth. On coming near, I saw it was not a man who had trodden on the trig and snapped it, but a bird, and I felt pleased. My bird. The bird was not equally pleased. Ignoring the relation between us, it took flight as soon as it saw the shape of my face and flew straight over the boundary hedge into a field, the property of Mrs. Hennessy, where it sat down with a long squawk loud squawk. It had become Mrs. Hennessy's bird. <laughs> something seemed greatly amiss here, something that would not have occurred had my wood been larger. I could not afford to buy Miss out. Mrs. Hennessy out. I dared not murder her, and the limitations of this sort beset me on every side. Nor was I comforted when Mrs. Hennessy's bird took alarm for the second time and flew clean away from all of us under the belief that it belonged to itself." <laughs> how do we relate to things where is there harm and where is there happiness and then just not living things but also um, inanimate things really in the last few years gotten um, just interested in like how I relate to the chair or the table or the dishes you know, do I wash the dishes carelessly and and uh, maybe crack them, or do I wash each one with care as a thing worthy of of respect? And then all the precepts can be expanded so much then there's the whole use of um, question of resource use, and do we take more than is given to us or more than we should, of the world's resources. So you can really, like all these precepts can be so expanded and um, looked at on so many different levels. The third precept on retreat is to refrain from Intentional sexual activity in order to understand the powerful energy of sexuality, which most of us know is a place where um, suffering can be caused. In our daily lives, it's to um, refrain from sexual misconduct or to refrain from using our sexual energy in a way that causes harm. So at the very least, to honor commitments. So at the very least, if you're in a committed relationship, not to go out looking for entertainment elsewhere. And if somebody you're attracted to is in a committed relationship, not to pursue that. But again, it can be amplified to just look at, is there honesty, for example, in our sexual relationships or... um, flirting. Flirting may be innocent fun in certain situations but in other situations it may cause somebody suffering if they believe that that you're interested and you're not. So just many ways we can look at that too. The fourth precept of um, our mindfulness training of uh, taking care with our speech for many people is uh, the hardest. Sometimes it seems that we open our mouths and mindfulness disappears. The Buddha gave four guidelines um, of speech to avoid. So to avoid um, false speech, to avoid um, harsh speech, to avoid divisive speech, and to avoid um, careless speech or gossip. Those who are here for another nine days, this one um, is easier for you <laughs> in the coming time, <laughs> but you'll get your turn too, right? Um, there's so many fun ways to explore this, this precept. So like, for example, maybe we don't tell lies, but do we exaggerate? You know how you're telling a story and, and uh, oh, I went to this party and there, so many, there must have been a hundred people there. And really, there were thirty, right? But, but a hundred sounds so much better. And we do this um, easily. I, I, I catch myself doing it sometimes. One time, to not engage in um, gossip uh, or, or causing harm with gossip, a friend of mine took a, a vow for a period of time that we would not talk about anybody who wasn't present. It cuts out a lot of conversation, <laughs> but it was also surprisingly intimate because basically we had to talk about ourselves. You know, it was really quite interesting. And then the last precept about um, not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind. So really about revering our body as our vehicle to liberation and taking good care of what we put in our bodies, our minds. It can be expanded beyond just intoxicants. But do we take good care of this body? Do we listen to it and what it needs? Do we take good care of our minds? Do we listen to them and what they need? The summer before, I did my first long retreat here. When I was 24, I did a five-month retreat here. And the summer before, I was living at my father's house, and I didn't have anything to do. I was kind of waiting for the retreat to start. And um, so I took to watching a couple of soap operas every day. And um, so I came to retreat, and you can guess what was going through my mind. (laughs) For the first three weeks it was it was horrible. <laughs> it was like, oh, I wonder if he's still with her, and I wonder if she found out this. <laughs> no, really, it went on. Oh, and I hope this and that, you know. And this went on um, for, for about three weeks, till so it finally wore itself out. But um, it taught me um, so much. It really taught me to be careful with what I put in my mind and heart, what kind of stimulation and boy do we have um choices once we get out there right or even here you you know you notice how we just crave the stimulation right the little sign in the bathroom you'll read it like 10 times or (laughs) or every time you go in there you read it right or the bulletin board um. but yeah what are what are we putting into our hearts and minds and um taking care with that So I hope that um, I have um, piqued your interest in sila practice and precept practice uh, and helped you to see that that it's a place where there's um, so much um, possibility for deepening our practice, our mindfulness, our compassion, our metta, So some people will maybe just take one precept to focus on, maybe one that's hard or difficult. But we need to move on. So let's move on to talking about dana or generosity. And in some ways they're um, they're flip sides, right? So uh, sila practice is refraining from doing harm and Donna practices doing what's good and kind, generous. So when I talk about giving or generosity, I'm not just talking about financial resources, but so many ways that we give. Kindness and service. Energy. Attention. So... Generosity is also expressing the heart of metta, the heart of kindness. And it's a deep spiritual quality because it acknowledges our interconnectedness, our interdependence. It um, encourages that unbound, that open heart. And it brings happiness and it energizes us. Pema Chodron said, giving ventilates the claustrophobia of (laughs) self-absorption. Brings some um, space and air into the contracted heart. Helps it to open. Be more spacious. So what uh, we can watch with um, generosity also how it can be more or less conditional. And that way, I I see it like metta, that our metta, we watch when metta is conditional and we watch when it's unconditional, right? When it's attached and when it's free. And with um, generosity, there's also this gradation that we can look at that um, sometimes the generosity has more contraction and attachment in it and sometimes it's freer. So we study the conditionality of our dhāna just like we study the conditionality of our metta. And I like to tell a story sometimes that illustrates from my own life that illustrates kind of how um, well it's called the three kinds of giving in Buddhism. And uh, I'll, I'll tell it to you. So um, birds, we hear a lot about birds here. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed the other morning that we had a um, Phoebe, Michelle, <laughs> <laughs> Michelle gave her talk about the bird and then, like, I don't know, it was the next morning. I think it wasn't the sitting. We had a Phoebe singing the whole, or good part of the sitting. See there? There was that exaggeration, right? It almost said the whole sitting. It wasn't the whole sitting. It was a good part of the sitting. It's so, um, right, so easy to do, So um, birds, I love birds, and um, one of my favorite things in the morning is to uh, uh, feed the bird, I have bird feeders, and to watch the birds, have a good cup of tea and watch the birds. And um, a number of uh, years ago, I need to tell you a little background. Bird feeding can be an expensive <laughs> um, uh, hobby, especially if the bears get the feeders, right, which they can do sometimes in the spring around here. And um, bird feeders are expensive. Um, and my, at my old house that I used to live at, uh, I wasn't as good as keeping the bird feeders away from the from the birds. And um, I mean, not the birds, the bears. One time, um, one of them took my feeder and he had it under his arm and then was galloping away on three paws with my bird feeder in the arm. (laughs) So one morning I was sitting there um, watching the birds and I found myself thinking, I've spent a lot of money on um, bird feeders and bird food. I wonder if I've gotten my money's worth. (laughs) Have I gotten enjoyment that was worth the money I've, I've spent on bird food and bird feeders? So this is some generosity, but you can see that there's a little bit of attachment and bargaining and um, self-interest. And then seeing that, seeing kind of the tightness and, and um, constriction of that thought, I had, I, tried to do, I decided to try a different thought. I thought, this bird food is my dana to the birds, my gift to them so that they'll be healthy and happy. And that felt better. It was uh, freer. And then my mind actually on its own went a little further. The thought arose, or, or it wasn't even a thought. It was more just me and the birds. We were hanging out in this universe, and we were each doing our role in a dance, an interconnected dance. And it wasn't so much about giving and receiving. It was just what was happening. And with that, my mind felt um, open and uh, unburdened with self-concern. So an unconditional kind of giving. And so we can um, study in our own lives, and our own dana practice, these three kinds of giving that in Buddhism are called beggarly giving, friendly giving, and um, we could call the last one selfless giving. And we just learn for ourselves um, which one feels better. Which one is the real expression of our understanding of our interdependence? Our understanding that we're all relatives. The Buddha said that um, generosity is uh, aids in purification of the mind because it teaches us to let go. It teaches us the freedom of non-attachment, of letting go. And that it's a real cause for um, joy for that reason. And sometimes in our culture, I think we see it more as a duty. Thou shalt be generous. But... um, the flavor of it is so much freer than that. The Buddha said that generosity brings happiness at every stage of its expression, that we feel joy in thinking about giving something, informing the intention to be generous, and we feel joy in giving the act itself, and we can feel joy in remembering I know I had to learn this. Generosity can really, um, it can touch really deep conditioning for many of us. Just patterns of um, and beliefs that we may have grown up with or picked up along the way. And um, it can really challenge them. I grew up feeling and understanding that it might be the best idea if I just looked out for myself. And so I really had to, um, I took on the practice of generosity to really learn if that was true or not. And to my great um, relief, discovering that um, giving brings happiness. Now some of you, that's a no-brainer. You already knew that. The biggest gift is um, the development of our own spiritual growth. So I believe that what we're doing here is a great gift to the world. As we become happier and more peaceful, we share that and it ripples out in this world. As we become steadier and more understanding, we share that as a gift. And as we become freer of suffering, we can offer that freedom to those around us. Here's um, a story I came across recently. Um, It's from Catherine Ingram, Passionate Presence. And I like it because it's just a little way of... um, uh, um, Showing just how what we do here uh, can spill out in ways that make the world a little bit happier. A few years ago, I was with a close woman friend in a grocery store in California, and we as we snaked along the aisles, we became aware of a mother with a small boy moving in the opposite direction and meeting us head on in each aisle. The woman barely noticed us because she was so furious at her little boy who seemed intent on pulling items off the lower shelves. As the mother became more and more frustrated, she started to yell at the child and several aisles later had progressed to shaking him by the arm. At this point, my friend spoke up. A wonderful mother of three and founder of a progressive school, she had probably never once in her life treated a child so harshly I expected my friend to give this mother, this woman, a solid mother to mother talk about controlling herself and about the effect this behavior has on a child. Braced for a confrontation, I felt a spike in my already elevated adrenaline. Instead, my friend said, What a beautiful little boy. How old is he? The woman answered cautiously, He's three. My friend went on to comment about how curious he seemed and how her own three children were just like him in the grocery store, pulling things off shelves, so interested in all the wonderful colors and packages. He seems so bright and intelligent, my friend said. The woman had the boy in her arms by now and a shy smile came upon her face, gently brushing his hair out of his eyes. She said, yes, he's very smart and curious, but sometimes he wears me out. My friend responded sympathetically. Yes, they can do that. They are so full of energy. As we walked away, I heard the mother speaking more kindly to the boy about getting home and cooking his dinner. We'll have your favorite, macaroni and cheese, she told him. It's, it's, um, it's just a little thing, right? But these opportunities to... Um, that was metta, right? That the opportunities to, to share metta. That's generosity. That's giving. That's what we're doing here. Developing that capacity to share this with others. Thank you. I want to end with a fun story about being kind. It's um, from a woman named Lori Anderson. It's called Wild White Horses. And it's about um, uh, the Dalai Lama and some of his monks visiting New York City doing a, a mandala, sand mandala. Last week, or last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York City to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take. And before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. (laughs) Maybe you've done the same. (laughs) And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. <laughs> and I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough? I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony, and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes. And I went up to one of the monks and said, Can you, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? And so we went to this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. (laughs) And I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me, please? And he was being really practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said the mind is a wild white horse and when you make a corral for it make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. And one more thing, keep moving because it's a long way home. So some of you will be heading home tomorrow. Some of you will be wishing you were heading home tomorrow. <laughs> some of you will be staying on and we um, will have new friends joining you tomorrow. Sometimes it's nice to think during the day, the day tomorrow, about your new friends that are coming and um, send them some metta remember what it was like the day you came to retreat you were busy you had a lot to do right and um, you can uh, wish them well as they're coming to join you they're going to be so happy to um, be here in your metta field that you've created and for those of you who are um, going home we'll have more time to talk tomorrow, tomorrow morning enjoy your last evening of silence and uh, metta practice and I hope you can come to the 9 o'clock uh, metta chanting and we'll uh, send this metta out all this this beautiful um, energy that we've developed we'll send it out to all the beings in the world let's sit for a minute Your mind is a wild white horse and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small.